glad you could all be with us this afternoon as we worship the Lord together. Last week we started a new preaching series looking at the, the five solas of the Reformation. And the five solas is a term used to define five foundational statements of the evangelical faith, really that have their origins in the, the days of the, the Reformation. And I mentioned them last week, they're on the screen there. Um, sola Scripture, which we looked at last week, means Scripture alone. Sola Gratia means grace alone. Sola Fide means faith alone. Solus Christus means Christ alone. And Sola Dea Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Today, we are going to be looking at Sola Fide. And we learned that the, the early reformers protested in favor of all of these, these solas, um, rather than rather than traditions and, and other things included. And they believe that the Bible alone is the final and ultimate authority for faith and practice of all Christians. And that was sola scripture, which we looked at last week. But today the title of my sermon is Sola Fide, Faith Alone, the Gift of Faith. So if you would take your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 3, the portion of scripture which we will use this morning. Is Romans chapter 3 from verse 19 to verse 28. If you would stand with me, please, as we read this portion of Scripture together out of respect to God's Word. Romans 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we, as we chew on this very meaty portion of Scripture. Lord, we do thank you for giving us parts of Scripture that are, are easy to digest and that are like milk, easily to, to swallow. But, Lord, we know this is a portion of Scripture that is going to require tough chewing, Lord. And we pray, Father, please, that you would help us to understand. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us. He would help us to apply this passage. And, Father, that we would digest this and be able to to use this in our, in our walk of faith, to be able to use this passage to defend our faith, to 
to be able to use these scriptures and this understanding to be able to declare our faith to those who are still lost in their sins. So please, Lord, we pray, help us, equip us for the work that you've called us to. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So sola fide is a Latin term which means faith alone. In other words, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Martin Luther, one of the reformers, the, the early reformers in the 16th century, expressed the importance of this doctrine, this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, and he said that this doctrine, this article, is the article by which the church stands or falls. This article is the article by which the church stands or falls. Sola fide, or faith alone, it really is a key point of difference, not only between Protestants and Catholics, but between biblical Christianity and almost all other religions and teachings. The teaching that we are declared righteous by God, which means justified, on the basis of our faith alone, and not by our works, is a key doctrine of the Bible, and really a line in the sand that divides us from most cults and other, other religions. While most religions and cults teach people what works they must do to be saved, the Bible teaches that we are not saved by works, but by God's grace through His gift of faith. And biblical Christianity is distinct from every other religion in that it is centered on what God has accomplished through Christ's finished work on the cross. While all other religions are based on what humans have achieved, what humans have done, the work that they have done. And modern Luther fought this battle until his death. And this is really what separated the true church from the apostate church in the, in the 16th century, this very doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, I believe with all my heart, if we abandon this doctrine of sola fide, if we abandon this doctrine of justification by faith alone, we really abandon the only way of salvation. Romans chapter 4 tells us, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteous. And that's the issue today. Is our faith credited as righteous? Or is our faith credited as, as unrighteous? We all have faith, isn't it? We all have faith in something. But is the object of our faith, is it Christ Jesus our Lord? And is our faith one that is credited as righteous? And the Bible teaches that those that trust Jesus Christ for justification by faith alone are imputed with His righteousness. We'll look more at these theological terms later on. But those who, who try to establish their own righteousness, or those who try to mix their, their faith with their, their works, will receive punishment to all who fall short of God's perfect standard. And this is very applicable for all of us, and, I, and I'll show you in a moment why. 
Um, when I did my, my master's, I did a, a thesis um, on, a, on a research paper on the effects of justification by faith in, in two, two cities in, this, in, in the country of India. And um, I was very shocked to see the results. Here's just a few of them. 72% of the people that I interviewed incorrectly said that a, a person needs to be baptized in order to go to heaven. Now, I did a, a research on people who were in a church already. This wasn't people who professed to be um, unbelievers. These were people who professed to be Christians. 72 incorrectly said, 72% incorrectly said that you need to be baptized in order to go to heaven. 79% incorrectly said that the righteousness of Christ is infused into a believer. 71% incorrectly said that a sinner is justified through the baptism of the, the Holy Spirit. 72% incorrectly said that a sinner is justified through faith in Jesus Christ plus good works. And then 51% said that a person needs to participate in Holy Communion in order to, to go to heaven. I hope that shocks you as much as it, as it, as it shocked me when I saw those results. But I'm pretty sure, I suspect that these re results are not inclusive to the, these churches in India. I suspect this morning that there are many people who profess to be Christians, whose faith is not in Christ alone, but in their works that they are still trying to do. I propose there are many people still today who are in churches who don't understand what it means to put their faith in Christ alone. And I want to emphasize this morning, if we abandon this doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone, we abandon the only way of salvation. And this vital doctrine is indeed the article by which the church stands or falls. And today we'll see from Scripture this important doctrine of faith alone. Here in our passage this morning in the book of Romans, here in chapter 3, Paul is writing to the church, to believers at, at Rome. And his intention in writing this letter to them is to explain clearly the good news of Jesus Christ, accurately and, and clearly. And my first point this morning, we see in verse 19 to verse 23, a righteousness we cannot produce and a righteousness we do not deserve. Look at verse 19 and 20 in your Bibles. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In verse 19 and verse 20, Paul shows that God demands a righteousness that we cannot possibly produce. And the term justified used there in verse 20 speaks of one's actions and one's attitudes that are, that are being judged as pleasing to God. And when this is true, it can be said that the individual is, is justified, he's declared righteous. Now, an example of being justified would be if a, if a parent sides with, with one child over another, and, and one child will feel righteous, the one child will feel justified, and the other will feel 
misunderstood and resentful. Maybe, maybe you can't relate, but I can in my family. One child is feeling justified, another child is, is feeling resentful. That is the, that is the example of, of feeling justified. However, in the biblical sense, to be declared righteous by God means more than simply being declared innocent. Remember when Adam was created, he was innocent. He had never ever sinned, but he was not righteous, at least not as we are defining this term. Because he had never sinned, he had no need to be declared righteous. There was no sin from which he needed to be saved by faith, at least not initially when he was first created. Perfect, remember? And to be justified necessarily implies that we have sinned, that we have fallen short of the, the standard which was not true of Adam in the garden. And Paul has argued through his letter here in Romans that, that everyone has sinned, that no one can please God, that we need to be justified. No one can be accepted by God through obedience to the law, simply because no man can fully obey the law. We are incapable of fulfilling the law. And the evidence that Paul provides for this is in the previous portion of Scripture. Look at verse 9 there in chapter 3. And because all have sinned, no one can possibly claim to deserve the righteousness that God gives. Look at, um, look at verse 9. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned, even you, even me, and no one can claim that they are righteous or that they deserve God's righteousness. Look at our text again in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Justification is not something that we earn. It is a gift given to us by God. Until we grasp this, we will never truly believe on Christ. Until we understand this fully, we will never truly understand the gospel. And while the law reveals to us our, our fallen condition, while the law reveals to us our hearts, our need for a Savior, the righteousness of which Paul speaks comes apart from the law. The law condemns us. We need something that will save us, that comes apart from the law. And that is we are not responsible to deliver this righteousness. This is not something that we can receive on our own. It is not a responsibility of, of law-keeping. 
And therefore, it is not from us in any means or form. And Paul now makes it clear that the righteousness of God is, is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. And the means by which God graciously grants us righteousness is faith, is faith in Christ Jesus alone. And this is true of anyone who will receive that righteousness. Contextually, remember what we're looking at here. As Paul speaks to the church at Rome, he's reminding them there is no difference between Jews and there are no difference between Gentiles. All are the same. The Jews may have had the law, but they are still sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Jews were openly exposed to God's righteous standard. They had the law of God with them. The Gentiles did not. And remember, even though they had the law, even though they were exposed to it, even though they were taught this law, ultimately it made no difference. It made no difference. Jews found it impossible to meet the standards just like the Gentiles did. And righteousness then could not only be granted graciously by God through faith in Jesus Christ, no one deserves this grace. It is a gift. It is a gift. It really is God's gift to undeserving, dead, disobedient, depraved, damned sinners. We must always be growing in our conviction that that a right standing before God is completely undeserved. If your faith is in Christ alone this morning, it's not because anything that you have done. God has given you this faith, completely undeserved. It is a gift. The reality of this should, should strike us the longer we are walking with Christ, the longer we stand in our faith. The longer we are saved, the more we should feel the weight of our, of our sin. And the more we will look to Christ to, to remove this, this weight. Martin Luther, during the 16th century, he, he once wrote to, to his young friend, um, Melanchthon, and this is what he said. He said to him, If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, over death and the world. Luther's not saying that believers must continue in their sin. They must continue to live in their sin. He's not saying that. But that no sin that the believer commits he's saying, is, is, is not stronger than the grace of God. The sins that we commit are not stronger than the grace of God. It is undeserved, this grace. And as we sin, we ought to feel the very weight of our sin. But if we have exercised faith in God, we should be at the same time assured by, by looking to Him alone that our faith is secured by the grace of God. Remember in Numbers 21 when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they came to Moses and they were complaining about the, the, the long distance they were traveling. They were complaining about the food. They were complaining about everything. And they came to Moses. And Moses went to the Lord and, 
He, he punished them. He brought snakes, serpents, poisonous serpents that, that bit these Israelites. And many of them died because of their sin against Moses and against the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He told them to, to build a serpent out of bronze and to put it on a pole. And everybody who was bitten had to look towards that pole. There was an idol worship. That picture there that we see even in John 3, 16, is that our faith has to be in Christ alone. We can't look to anything else. I'm pretty sure those Israelites who were bitten tried other things to solve their, 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 their problems, to solve the, 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 the poison that was infecting them. I'm sure many of them went to, to local doctors to try and cure them from the poison in their body. I'm sure many of them tried remedies to, to try and escape this poison that was killing them. But many of them died, it said. Many of them died because they would not put their faith in Christ alone. They wouldn't look to the cross. And still that happens today. People mix their Christianity with their traditions. People mix their, their faith with their, their bank accounts. People mix their, their faith with their, their education. And they don't put their faith completely in Christ alone. And as a result, they are damned. Romans 8 tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God's grace and love are able to overcome any sin of which we might be guilty. And the solution is we need to look to Christ alone. Not wash our sins under the carpet or, or try and get them clean any other way. We are to look to Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. There is a righteousness we cannot produce and do not deserve. But secondly, from verse 24 and 25, there is a righteousness without which we are damned. Without which we are damned. We just read in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 verse 10 tells us, None is righteous, no, not one. And then Romans 3.20 makes it clear that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So how then is anyone saved? How then is anyone saved? If we all sinners, and we are, and if we are all under God's righteous wrath, and we are, and if we are all under condemnation, and we are, and if there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, and we cannot, how then can we be saved? The only way it is possible to be saved is if God does the saving for us. We do not deserve help. We do deserve 
God's wrath. We do deserve God's judgment. We do deserve His condemnation. But thankfully, God works on our behalf. He works on behalf of sinners. And that is what grace is. That is the definition of grace. Look at verse 24. The Apostle Paul says that we are justified by His, that's God, we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love the way J.R. Packer, um, Christian author and theologian, I love the way he explains grace. This is what he says. He says that the grace of God is love, freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. So the source of our justification is the grace of God. Nothing that we've done, but the very grace of God. This, there is a hymn called Before the, the Throne of God Above, written by uh, Charity Bancroft. And the question that she, she poses in the, in the hymn is, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, what, what do you do? When Satan does it, when Satan tempts you to despair and he tells you of the guilt within, what, what do you do? Well, I hope you know that the, the, the song, the answer is in the song. The answer is, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because of Jesus Christ's righteous life, because of his sacrificial death, because of his victorious resurrection, our sin can be made an end of. We can be justified. That is how we are saved. It is important to remember that God's declaration is grounded in an historical event. And it's God who declares us righteous. But this declaration is grounded in an historical event. This is not something that we've invented this is not something that we've made up. This is not something that we've, we've, we've read in a mythical novel. This is grounded in a historical event. God's righteous wrath was satisfied when God put His Son to death on the cross of Calvary. That historical event that I'm talking about. When Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could be declared righteous. You know, in our experience as a church, a believer's baptism is a joyous experience, and I get the best view. I get to be right in front. When believers go through the waters, we, we rejoice with them, don't we? We, we often clap and applaud, and we often sing songs. Uh, songs. It's, it's commonplace in our church to applaud uh, as someone is climbing out of the pool. And family members come to witness the event, Photographs are taken and congratulations are sometimes offered. But, but I have often wondered, I've often wondered, how did Jesus feel at his baptism? I think, I suspect, though I cannot really prove it, that his baptism was perhaps one of the saddest moments of his life. When Jesus submitted to baptism, he was 
identifying with sinners. He was not a sinner. He was identifying with sinners. And for the sinless and eternal Son of God to identify with, with sinful mortal men must have been a sobering experience, something he had never ever experienced before, never ever felt before. In verse 24, in our passage, the word redemption is used. And that term redemption refers to, to a buying back, specifically to, to purchase in a marketplace. In the sacrifice of Christ, God's demand price was paid in full and accepted. Jesus knew the only way that we would have any way to be reconciled with God is if he identified with sinners and gave his life for sinners. The only way we could be reconciled is if the sinless Son of God gave his life as a ransom for us. You see, someone had to pay the penalty. The choice is really quite simple. And it's still the same today. Either we let Jesus pay the penalty or we have to pay that penalty ourselves. God's justice demands that sin is punished. And the question this morning is, do you see Jesus dying in your place? Is your faith in that historical event when Jesus died in your place? Do you believe that? Or are you willing to gamble that you still can pay the price? And if you don't believe that, you will pay that price. But you will do it in a place called hell. You will do it in a place called hell. You will pay for your sins in a place called hell. Remember in the Levitical priesthood system, in the Old Testament, the person bringing a sacrifice would usually, he would lay his hand on the animal to be, to be sacrificed. And he would identify with it. And he would signify that this animal was taking his guilt. The animal was being punished for his sin. The animal was being sacrificed for his sin. And similarly, we must, by faith, we must lay our hands on Christ. Believing that, that it is Christ who has taken our punishment. If we, are, if we will be redeemed by God. Do you see that Christ has taken God's wrath for you? Do you believe that? Is your faith in Christ alone? Again, I'm, I'm using that word intentionally. Is it in Christ alone? If not, ask God to help you see. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He is the propitiation. He is our advocate. He is the one who has taken our sins. Do you believe this? Is your faith in Christ alone? So we've seen, firstly, a righteousness we cannot produce, and we do not deserve. Secondly, a righteousness without which we are damned. But thirdly, we see in verse 25 and verse 26, we learn that God demonstrated His righteousness which cannot be denied. 
both in verse 24 as well as in verse 26, it shows us that faith in Christ is really the key to receiving this justification. Look at the end of verse 25 there in your Bibles. The apostle speaks of the fact that in his divine forbearance, he being God, had passed over former sins, sins that we had previously committed. It was to show or it was to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now remember, God does not simply declare the sinner justified out of nothing. Rather, it is by faith in his son, Jesus. It is through Christ that God's justice has been satisfied. And these verses assure us that this is the case. This is not just theology here, folks. This is, this is very practical. Think of all the things that people can do and have done and put their, put their faith in, hoping that, that because of their, their works or because of their faith, they will be declared right with, with God. Now, people put their, their faith in their, their parents' religion. People put their faith in their traditions. People put their faith in religion itself. In India, there was this ritual called sati. And when her husband died and his wife was left alive, she would, she would be bound on his funeral pyre and she would be, be burned to death. And the wife would willingly do this because they believed that if she did this work, if she performed this sacrifice, she could earn salvation for her children and for seven subsequent generations after that. And these women would do this willingly, willingly put themselves on top of this fire to be burned as a sacrifice for their children in order to earn salvation, in order to be right with God. And these Hindus were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They were sincerely wrong. The object of our faith is so important because if we put our faith in the wrong object, it will lead to eternal damnation. And there are so many people who are sincere in their faith. They are sincere in their religion. And they are sincere in their, their works that they do and their efforts to please God. But if the object of their faith is not in Christ alone, they are also sincerely wrong. And the reason why our faith must be in in Christ only is because He alone has the righteousness that we need. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I hope you know this verse. For He, God, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It was Christ in whom God was well pleased. Even Pontius Pilate could find no fault with Jesus. And where we failed to meet God's standard, Jesus succeeded. He completely fulfilled the law. Never sinned once. And He alone has the ability to give us what we cannot earn 
ourselves. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 clearly says that our faith needs to be in Christ alone. Without faith in Jesus, we remain in sin, and we cannot be accepted into God's presence. We cannot be accepted into His perfect heaven. You know, in India and in a lot of Arab nations, we had to take our, our shoes off before we entered somebody's home. And that for practical reasons, there was a lot of dirt that people would, would stand on and step on outside. And to keep the house clean, you'd take off your shoes. Folks, you cannot come into heaven with your shoes on, with your sin on your back. You cannot go into the presence of a holy God with sin in your heart and your lives. We need someone to take that sin away. Without faith in Jesus, we remain in sin, and we cannot be accepted into God's presence. We need to trust in Christ alone to do that. Later on, I'll spend more time looking more closely at this, at this important doctrine, which is solus Christus, which is Christ alone, and we'll spend more time looking at that. But for now, for today, we need to understand from our passage that Christ paid in full what we owed by dying on the cross of Calvary. And this gift of the sacrifice of God's own Son to atone for our sins must be received, Paul writes, by faith, by faith alone. In fact, Paul makes it clear that faith is, is this gift. And this act by Christ on our behalf is the only way for anyone to be made righteous before God and to be included in His family. So quickly, we've seen a righteousness we cannot produce and we do not deserve. Secondly, we've seen a righteousness without which we are damned. Thirdly, His righteousness which cannot be denied. And then lastly, we need to understand that God declares His righteousness which we dare not disregard. And we see this in verse 27 and verse 28. Look there with me in your Bibles. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. <coughs> Underline that little word in your Bible. Apart from works of the law. And those who reject sola fide, reject the only gospel that can save them, and by necessity, what do they do? They embrace a false gospel. They embrace a false gospel. A gospel of prosperity, perhaps. A gospel of tradition, perhaps. A gospel of works, perhaps. And that is why Paul so adamantly denounces those who, who taught law-keeping or other works of righteousness. And yet today, this important biblical doctrine is is once again under attack in our own churches. And too often, sola fide is, is really downgraded as a, as a secondary importance instead of being recognized as an essential doctrine of Christianity. This is an essential doctrine of Christianity. I know we've gone to a lot of passages this morning, but please turn to Galatians. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Keep your finger in, in Romans. Galatians chapter 3. It's important for me to show you from verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith 
Those who believe who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations, in you all the nations will be blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. Keeping laws and rules will not save us. I mentioned the, the Hindus earlier, they, but they are not the only religion that holds to salvation by works. You know, we live in a land where we hear a call to prayer five times a day, don't we? And millions of people around the world will strive to keep the, the five pillars of, of Islam. Five times a day they will kneel toward Mecca. And the creed often forms on their lips. And they fast during the daylight of, of Ramadan. And then they save up money for the pilgrimage to Mecca. And then they freely give alms to, to the poor people. A system of works. But the question is, is keeping the five pillars enough? Is keeping these, these five rules enough? God is the just judge. And by keeping laws and rules, our sin is not forgotten. Our sin will not go unpunished, regardless of how well anyone keeps laws or, or rules or how many good deeds that people do. Keeping these rules will not help you get into heaven. And that's the argument Paul is making here in the book of Galatians. He's making this argument to the Jews who thought the same thing. Keeping the law will get them into heaven. And Paul says in our passage in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart. Highlight that word. Underlight that word. Our brother Tina shared some background for us on the life of uh, Martin Luther during one of our family Bible hour classes. Remember Martin Luther, he became a, a Protestant reformer, but before he did, he was a, he was a Catholic priest. He was a, he was a Catholic monk, and he lived a very disciplined life as a, as a monk. He would pray eight times a day, not just five, eight times a day. He would have to perform hard manual labor to help clean and maintain the, the monastery. He would have to perform painful penance. And he practiced what people called mortification of the flesh. And what this involved was fasting and self-flagellation. And that was flogging himself with, with whips, taking a whip and beating himself, trying to pay for his, his own sinful nature and thoughts that he had. And he had very little time for, for sleep. He slept in a stone cell without even a, a blanket. And he did all of these things so that he could try and be right with God. That was his objective. But this is what he wrote in his journal. Martin Luther wrote these words. He said, The sight of a crucifix was like lightning to me. And when his name was spoken, when Jesus' name was spoken, I would rather have heard 
the name of the devil because I thought I must do good works until Christ, because of them, became friendly and gracious to me. I mean, here's this monk, here's this priest, thinking that he had to earn favor with God. He had to do all these things in order for God to like him, to embrace him, to accept him. As disciplined as a monk's life was, he, he soon realized that no amount of penance, no amount of good works was going to absolve him of his sins. And John MacArthur, in his book, The Gospel According to the Apostles, he says, True salvation cannot be earned by works. There are, after all, only two kinds of religions in all the world. Every false religion ever devised by mankind or by Satan is a religion of human merit. Pagan religion, humanism, animism, and even false Christianity all fall into this category. They focus on what people must do to attain righteousness or please their deity. Biblical Christianity alone is the religion of divine accomplishment. Other religions say, do this. Christianity says, it is done. Other religions require that the devout person supply some kind of merit to atone for sin, appease deity, or otherwise attain the goal of acceptability. Scripture says, Christ's merit is supplied on behalf of the believing sinner. Martin Luther was correct in saying that this doctrine of sola fide, the doctrine of justification by, by faith alone, is the article by which the church stands or falls. And if we abandon this doctrine of sola fide, we abandon the only way of salvation. And the question I want to leave you with this morning, have you placed your faith in Christ alone? Do you trust Him to save you? And are you ready to place your faith in Jesus? But before I finish, believer, this is for you this morning. Please don't leave here this afternoon misunderstanding me. Faith alone does not mean that you can be saved without producing good works. The epistle of James has a lot to say about that. Genuine faith in Christ, the Apostle James says, will produce a changed life, will result in good works. It is evidence of the root that is in Christ. The fruit, the fruit that is produced is evidence of the root that is in Christ. James is not saying that justification is by faith plus works, but that a person who is truly justified by faith will have good works in their life. And the works are an outward show of genuine faith in Christ. And it's that outward show that justifies the believer in the sight of other people. And Paul says those who have true faith in Christ will be eager to do what is good. And Paul says that we were created to do good works. Salvation comes by God's grace through faith. And that faith is made manifest in good works. And the works follow the faith and are proof of it. Is there evidence of that in your life tonight, today, believer? Is there evidence of these good works because of the faith that you have put in Christ alone? If not, examine your heart this afternoon. Examine whether your faith is in Christ alone or whether you are just as confused as Martin Luther once was. Is your faith 
in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that has been written, that has been preserved for our instruction, for our training in righteousness. And Lord, we ask that your Spirit, Lord, would produce a faith through the preaching of your Word that would lead to salvation to those who are not saved, Lord. I pray, Father, for those who are still deceived by the world, deceived, Lord, by their own ignorance and are putting their faith in other things. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal their heart to them today. Lord, that they would have the grace they need to repent of their sins. Lord, I pray that you would grant repentance and faith today where it is needed, that people would turn to Christ in faith alone. For your glory, Lord, and for the joy of your people, I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.